0: You have your bibles. Turn it up to Second Thessalonians. You remember some time back? I don't know if it was springtime or when, but we went through the first letter to the Thessalonians. We never quite got to the second one. So we're going to go back and revisit. Um, I've enjoyed our study in Hebrews. I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope you've learned. And more importantly, I hope that we can apply what we've learned. But given that it's been a minute since we looked at the first letter, let's go back actually and start in Acts chapter 17 and rebuild our context a little bit. In the middle of the Apostle Paul's journey, he's over... In Greece, he's crossed the Aegean Sea, left over area of you know, Troas or Troy, gone up to first Grecian city, which was Philippi, and then after leaving there, because he had a kind of a rough visit. Right? That was when he got thrown in jail, publicly beaten. Um, and what was his crime, boys? Time to be quiet. He was preaching. Because he was preaching the word, he was beaten and thrown in jail. Okay. So he goes down, chapter 17, verse 1. They go to the next towns, Amphipolis and Apollonia, and then they come to Thessalonica. The letter to the Thessalonians, the city of Thessalonica. Where was a synagogue of Jews? The synagogue was the local gathering place. You had to have a certain number of Jews in order to support having a physical structure there. Back at Philippi, there weren't enough. They just met down by the river. So here you've got a larger population of Jews in Thessalonica. And Paul... "...as his manner was, went into them three Sabbath days, reasoning with them out of the Scripture." So he was there a total of three weeks, right? Three different Sabbath days. And he's reasoning with them out of the Scripture. These Jews are familiar with the Old Testament. And so he's taking the Old Testament and he is opening to and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. He's saying these are the prophecies that point to the Christ coming. He was going to suffer. He was going to rise again. And then he took it a step farther that they didn't know yet and say, and this is the Jesus whom I preached unto you. This is him. He's the Christ. I'm an eyewitness. I've seen him alive. That was one of the characteristics of being one of those specially designated apostles is that not only um, were you called God to be his special messenger, but you had to have physically seen the risen Christ. All right? That's what you're an eyewitness of us. And so Paul, even though he was significant later in time, he had that vision on the road to Damascus where he saw Jesus, had the bright light. Everyone else saw, they heard the voice, but they couldn't see him. And then later Jesus would appear to him multiple other times in visions. And so here he's saying, here's the Scripture. Here's what it said it was going to do. Here how he's fulfilled all this. This is the one. This is the Christ. All right? And some of them believed. Some of them—it's referring to those who are Jews. Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. Consort—it just means consort means to associate with. They, they cast in their lot, saying, "Okay, this is—we've seen the scripture, seen, heard what you said. We believe we're following that. We're casting in our lot with you, with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. Now, what's a devout Greek? Well, this is one who is not a natural Jew." but they had been converted to serving the Lord their God. Right? They use the term proselyte. The Jews would go and teach them, say, you need to serve God, and then they would. So they were devout Greeks, but they weren't naturally Jews. It says a great multitude of them followed, some of the Jews, a great multitude of the devout Greeks, or Gentiles would be another description for it, um, and of the chief women, not a few. All right, So you've got all the time and labor and energy that these people have gone out converting these idolatrous Gentiles, to worshiping God. And now this guy comes in and teaches a new doctrine that most of these Jews don't follow. They don't believe. And there goes your crowd. They got ticked. They were really angry. So much so, it says, "...the Jews that believed not, moved with envy or jealousy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the base resort." Don't know exactly where you'd pick up lewd fellows of the base resort back then, but imagine you go out of the biker bar and you start handing out dollars and say, or hundreds, say, I need you to come start some trouble. Right? That's what they did. They went and hired troublemakers, lewd fellows of the base resort, and gathered a company, a mob, and set the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So Jason was the guy who'd opened up his house for Paul and his company to stay in. And so these guys who didn't believe brought their mob with them and started attacking the house and drawing Jason out because of it. Not only that, they drew him uh, all the way to the rulers of the city saying that these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. And that turned means disturbed. So they're shouting this, this crying, the shouting. They're shouting, these that have disturbed the world, and that world there uh, literally means land or globe, but often it's used to refer to the Roman Empire. And you can see that context. They've turned the empire upside down, or come hither also, whom Jason hath received, accepted into his home, entertained them hospitably. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, one Jesus. All right, So, Rome is the power of the day. All right, The military power, they've conquered huge swaths of the land and this is under their rule. And so how do these folks who don't believe try to cause trouble, they try to get the government to do their dirty work. They say, these guys they're, they're rabble rousers. They're talking against Caesar. You should attack them. You should punish them. Do something right. They're trying to say that they are um, worthy of the government's intervention to um, harm them. Okay. And they troubled the people. And the rulers, and that troubled means to stir up. They agitated. It's like stirring the water, stirring the pot. They stirred the pot, and the rulers of the city, when they heard these things. Because the rulers of the city, what do they want? Do they want Rome coming down on them because they've got people who are, you know, forming insurrections? No. Right? Rulers of the city who are under military law want things to be calm. Otherwise you can lose your job, or more likely your head. Okay? So they were upset. And when they had heard all these things, they had taken security of Jason's. So they took some form of collateral and of, and of the other, whoever the other brother was, they didn't say, and they let them go. Now Paul and them happened to not be at the house at the time, but when they found out, um, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. Right, they sent them down the road. You can look at that map in the back of your Bible, see about how far it was. I think when I used my ruler, it was about 30 miles or something. It's pretty far down the road. And when you're going on foot or you know, donkey or something, that's pretty far way to travel. So they go down the road to the next city, Berea, who come in there they went into the synagogue of Jews. All right, so same thing. You left Philippi because you've been beaten and thrown in jail. You go to the next town, you preach again. Here you're getting run out by a mob that's ready to string you up. You go to the next town, what do you do? You preach again. And they did. They went to Berea and they preached coming into their synagogue of the Jews another synagogue large population of Jews and these were more noble than those in Thessalonica it's referring to the Jews the more noble noble means well born okay now this is not referring to them being part of the aristocracy this is i think this is referring to being born again that those that are born again will hear when they hear will recognize the truth right? and so they were well born than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. Not you know, so that Some of them believed back in Thessalonica. These are more well-born, more born again, and many of them believed. And they were checking it out. They were going to see, search the Scriptures, to see if what he's saying matched up. Right? They're trusting, they're trying the doctrine, improving it, and keeping that which is good, which is the same charge that we have. All right. therefore many of them believed and also the honorable women which were Greeks and of the men not a few but what do the Jews in Thessalonica like about this their neighbors down the road you know, folks down in Valdosta things start going well for them you know, it's like going down there the Jews in Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul and Berea they came thither also and started the people so they took their mob on the road we'll go down to the next time we'll run them out of there too you're still too close so, they're going to go down to the next Well, we'll see. So, rather than continuing on the road, Paul gets on a ship and he goes like 250 miles south to Athens so they don't chase him that far. All right. That's it. That's all we know about the backstory of Thessalonica. Okay. Other than that, we've got the two epistles that Paul writes to them. Okay. So you can see the difference there in their Jews. You had some who believed in Thessalonica versus those who were in the next town, Berea. There were many who believed and the difference in those was that there were more who were well-born or noble. And so Paul's message was consistent wherever he went. He would go and he would open the Scriptures and he'd say Christ had to suffer. He had to die. This Jesus is the Christ. He's fulfilled all this and he rose again. He lives today. So... When that mob came and accused them, saying that they did contrary to all the decrees of Caesar, they were lying. They were falsely accused. Now there's one aspect that was true. Did they allege that there was another king, Jesus? Absolutely. That's true. But what they were trying to insinuate is that these people are trying to form a insurrection, a rebellion against Rome, the current government. That's not true. We're not called to that. Go to 1 Peter. I read First Peter this week, right? First Peter, chapter two, and down in verse eleven it says, "Dearly beloved, I beseech you, I beg you, as strangers and pilgrims, as in not citizens of this land but those passing through, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest, your whole manner of life should be honest among the Gentiles." That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So even though folks are speaking evil of you now because you're following Christ, continue to do good. Continue to follow Christ because you know what they're going to have to do on the day of visitation, that last day? They're going to have to glorify God because of you are continuing to stand fast in spite of how you are treated. Okay? That's what it's saying. But verse 13 is what I'm getting at. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man. That's the blanket statement. As followers of Christ, we're called to submit to the civil government. um, And it doesn't matter how high up you go, whether it be to the king, the supreme, top dog, or any intermediary all the way down. Why are we doing that? Because they're inherently right or their laws are just. No, we're doing it for the Lord's sake. This is what He's called us to do. Submit yourself for the Lord uh, submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king, a supreme, or to governors, some lower ranking, as unto them that are sent by him for the punish of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. All right? So even in the spite of injustice and things that are awry around you, unless it directly conflicts with what God has called you to do, you have to submit for His sake. The exception to that is when He calls you to do something, when they tell you to do something that is contrary to what God has told you to do. If they are telling you to break His law, do something that which is unholy, then, for the Lord's sake, you don't, because you submit to the Lord as the higher authority. But the general rule is that you submit, for so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That's That's your general rule. That we are to submit to the laws of men. So for their charge of saying these are doing contrary to all the decrees of Caesar, well, they didn't have any authority to do that. For every decree that was not explicitly contrary to their what God had called them to do, they're called to submit. Okay? I mean they get explicit about it, even paying your taxes and doing all those other kind of mundane things, following the speed limit. Just okay? That's the general rule. We're not called to rebel against the powers that be over us we're not Now there are there are false teachers today who will claim to take the name of Christianity and say that you need to take up arms or have violence or rebellion against your government no you can lawfully use the ability that you have to vote within the laws to institute change that's fine, that's great but there is nothing in Scripture that authorizes you to take up arms and rebel. This is not your nation. We're pilgrims and sojourners passing through. It's not going to be perfect here. And Christ did not call us to fix it. Okay, Particularly not by force. We're pilgrims and sojourners. That means we're passing through. We're going to faithfully serve Him for His sake regardless of what's going on. The parish likes to pray Thanking the Lord that we have the freedom to worship. It's a wonderful privilege. It's not going to change anything that we do if that's taken away. We may not advertise our public service times as loudly, but we're going to continue to meet. That's not that is not contingent upon our ability to serve. We'll go to later in Second Peter or 1 Peter chapter 3. You see a similar idea of continuing to do good even in the face of evil. 1 Peter 3, um, starting in verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one another. Love as brethren, be pitiful and courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, contrariwise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. So regardless of what input you're given from the world, you continue to do good. Not returning the evil. It's our carnal self wants to do the evil, right? Well, if you get hit in the face, you really want to turn around and knock someone's jaw off, right? It's not what we're called to. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and let his lips that they speak no guile. So even right in here, just the returning. You know, we've got those saucy retorts that we're ready with. <laughs> Sometimes we're really smart and they're clever. We need to keep our faces shut, right? Because that's not what we're called to. That's given into our carnal self, not following the Lord's commandment. Let his lips, they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil, flee from evil, and do good. Let him seek peace, and that seeking peace is pursuing after it, and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And just as a general rule, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? You're less likely to have enemies if you're doing that, which is good. Right? Does it mean you won't? No? So sometimes you will suffer because you're doing right. But and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. and be not troubled of their terror, neither be, and not be afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you of your good conversation in Christ. So in that context, you've been doing right. You've been serving the Lord. You're not causing trouble. You're not opening up your mouth. You're not causing uh, guile or filth or doing the wrong thing. And you're still having things heaped upon your head being defamed for righteousness' sake, because you're doing right, um, and you're not returning it back, it says that you can be happy. You're blessed. Your carnal self says, what? Yeah." Sanctify the Lord in your heart. Set Him apart as holy, and be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear because they're going to wonder what's wrong with you. <coughs> if you're doing good and you're having evil heaped upon your head because of it, the world's going to hate you. hated your master. It's going to hate you. And then you continue to serve God faithfully, cheerfully, patiently enduring, doing the will of God, folks are going to be looking at you like, well, why aren't you so upset? Why aren't you bitter? Why aren't you angry? Right? Right? You're gonna, that's when your opportunity is to give an answer of that hope that's within you. That's why you can patiently endure whatever you're going through in this world because you see to the other side. Those promises that you've been made for, you, that whole thing we've been looked at in Hebrews, right? You need patience to endure that you may faithfully live by faith, doing the will of God so you can please Him well acceptably while you're here. And regardless of what's going on, you see... The promises that He's made, and you see who's sitting on the right hand of God—the the one who's faithful, who's made those promises—and that's where you're going to. Right? So, having a good conscience, having a good conscience—that means you're doing what's right, so that your mind is not bothered, regardless of what you've been accused with. You know that you've, you're done, done doing right, and they—they they can keep speaking of you as evildoers. Right? They did it with Paul. They did it with these folks saying that they're trying to overthrow, you know, Rome. But ultimately, they have to be ashamed because they can't find anything on you. Right? Have to be ashamed for your good conversation. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well doing than for evil doing. Right? Now, if you're if you're sinning and making mistakes and you're suffering for it, well, that's that's chastening, right? That's fine. But it's more pleasing to the Lord that when you're tried and the difficulties come because you're doing right, that you continue to do right. That's pleasing. Okay? All right. I'm going to go back to introducing uh, our Thessalonians. So, that was a bit of that charge there as they were being brought to task. So, a young church, right? You had uh, Paul in town for three Sabbaths. Can y'all learn everything you need to know about how to serve God in three Sundays? No. I sure can't teach it all in three Sundays. But that's about how much time he had. and then, in the midst of that, you know, your brand new deacon or whoever you know is invited, you know, the pastor to stay with them, has now been hauled down to the, you know, the county square, and they've had security taken of them. And there's a riot. You know, this is a little scary, right? You might be tempted to just kind of fold up shop and kind of, you know, flee away. That's what your carnal self would say, right? But yet they didn't. They didn't. And so, in the midst of this terrible persecution, they continued steadfastly. To preach the word and to live it out and to learn and to grow. And so you can see that throughout the first letter uh, to the Thessalonians. And I'll just briefly, briefly, briefly recap the whole thing. Uh, you know, in chapter one, Paul says how thankful he is that they are still faithfully serving. You know, he's down um, most likely in Corinth when he's writing this letter. So he's down the road. He'd like to get back to him, He hasn't been able to, but he's been able to hear, because he sent Timothy to go check on them, um, that they're faithfully serving and that the word is being spread. And the word is being spread all across the country and region about how faithfully they're serving. right? That they're growing in faith and in love and in grace. Um, and folks are hearing about it. And they're glorifying God because in the midst of their persecution, they're continuing to do the right thing. And then in the second chapter, he reminds them about the example that he gave for them. When I was there, this is how I came unto you. Um, he was gentle, he was patient, he was honest all those things that he wanted them to see this is the marks for someone who's coming to you in honesty to compare that against those who are going to come and try and teach the wrong thing right? and then in chapter 3 he, he's really desiring to be with them um, he'd been hindered from going back you know, obviously the mob that came to the next town ran him out from Berea too he's really far away now um, you know, Corinth is way down here in the southern tip of Greece and you know, we're talking way up north um, several hundred miles away he liked to be able to see one, but he did manage to get Timothy. Timothy went to go check on him, and he brought back a report, and that things are great, that they are still remembering him in, in, in a high manner, um, and that they've got faith, and they've got charity, and they're, and they're doing the right thing. They're on the right track. And so from that, he encourages them. Keep going. And chapter 4 is all about these practical exhortations about how to go about living and serving God. The things that he didn't have a chance to really talk to explicitly or in great depth while he was there of serving God in a godly manner, living a holy life, avoiding fornication, um, not being unclean or covetous. Let your love continue to increase. Work hard, live quietly, live honest lives with those that are about you. And then at the end of chapter 4, and we'll read this just for the sake, he describes this beautiful scene of Christ's return. All right? He didn't want them to be uh, ignorant about what would happen to those who have already died. It says, "...concerning them which are asleep or dead, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope." There are those who didn't know what would happen at Christ's return. So he's here telling them, I don't want you to be ignorant of it. So he says, "...if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which we do, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him." That sleep refers to their physical bodies. "...for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or proceed them which are asleep for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and this ain't going to be a little whoop it's going to be a shout and with the voice of an archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with them together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so shall we ever be with the Lord wherefore comfort one another with these words It's a joyful, it's a beautiful scene. This is the scene that every elect child of God is going to see and enjoy and we should anticipate with pleasure. Okay, but It's only telling half of the same coin. And we're going to look at the second half um, in 2 Thessalonians. And then at the end of chapter 5, um, he gives some warnings that nobody knows the day that this is going to happen. says it's going to come as like a thief in a night. However, it should not overtake you as a thief in the night. What does that mean? That means you should be awake. You cannot say the time that it's going to happen, but you should be alert and sober and living the life, serving God now, and not be surprised when it comes. That's the idea. For your children of light, um, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that are drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a an helmet... The hope of salvation. So we're going to continue to faithfully serve, right? Living as if we are um, children of the light, right? And then it goes on and wraps up with some more um, exhortations on you know, practical godliness and and our manner and how we go about um, serving. Okay, and that, I know this is super high level. Go reread it, but I want to look at 2 Thessalonians. So that's your intro. Um, he has not been able to get back to them physically. Um, they've written something in response. We don't know what that is. And so 2 Thessalonians is kind of the follow-up note. It's real short. It's only three chapters. We'll probably just uh, look at chapter 1 uh, this morning. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus, and that's Silas, in case you're curious. next they'd like say Silas and Timothy. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, same guys unto the church, the called out assembly, of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he has a prayer for them. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, that's that's one sentence. There's only three sentences in the first chapter, so the uh, second one makes up the bulk of it. Paul wrote like a lawyer with run-on sentences and Uh, clauses that go on for days. Um, So kind of hang on to it. that That was sentence one. Just saying who it's from, who it's to, and praying that the Lord would bless them with grace and peace. All right. Verse three. We are bound, we're obligated, it's meat, it's right, it's necessary. We are bound to thank God always for you. Church of the Thessalonians, the individuals, brethren, as it is meat, as it is right... Why are they bound to thank God? Why is it right? Because your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you towards each other aboundeth. All right? So you had two different things. Your faith groweth exceedingly. All right? the idea here with this exceeding, groweth exceedingly, it's one Greek word, but basically if Brother Parish had like a super bumper crop where it's like you a know, hundred times what you'd normally have, that's the idea that's being expressed. You have know, a super abundance of growth, growing exceedingly, your faith is growing. Now, this is a young church, right? He hasn't been back to encourage them. Timothy was able to go for a little bit of time. Um, They've had one epistle, one letter written to them, Um, and they're in the midst of persecution. That all sounds kind of hard, right? And yet, their faith is still growing exceedingly. That's good. He's he's thanking God for them. Is he thanking them? or I'm proud of you. No thanking God he's giving credit where credit is due right So I'm thanking God for you because your faith growing exceedingly and listen to all these individual words the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth the love of each individual member at that church was abounding towards each individual member of that church Right? There wasn't any exceptions in that. The love or charity of every one of you, all, it's even a repetition there, towards each other, aboundeth. It's like your cup's flowing over. Right? Superabundance. That's what he's rejoicing in the Lord for. Right? Y'all need something to pray for Fairhaven this week? Pray that our faith will increase exceedingly and that our love, everyone, So he's thanking God, now, that he's seeing, that he's hearing, that their fruit is growing. So, so because of that, so we're thanking God for those things, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now, we should only glory in God. So what does he mean by here he's glorying in the churches? It means I get to brag on God by how he's using you. Right? I'm thanking God for these benefits that are growing in you, and I get to brag on him by using you as an example on all the other churches that I'm going and talking to. All right? Setting the example. We talked about that back in Hebrews, about that we're to imitate those who live their life with faith and patience, waiting patiently to endure the promises. Well, they're fitting that model. They're being a good example. You and I should be examples. And what's the example that he's showing? He says, for your patience and faith... In all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, so there, the, things haven't gotten better. Persecutions—that means to crowd together. That means that mob. Remember that took you know Jason and them. That's the—that's the idea of everyone's kind of thronging, crowding you together. That's that makes you a little uncomfortable, right? And then the tribulations; those are the afflictions that can be the verbal scorn that's being heaped upon you. The lies. Well, you're you're trying to overthrow Caesar. Or you're trying to change everything and you're, you're, we, you're evil, you're wicked, whatever it is, right? So you've got physical assault, you've got verbal assault, you've got whatever it is. It says in the midst of all that, you're still patiently and faithfully serving. And setting a good example. You're not rendering evil for evil, but rather you're continuing to do good, continuing to do right. Okay? In the midst of persecutions, which you endure, all right? Patience and faith. Yeah, you know, I mentioned that. Let's go look at it just real briefly from back in Hebrews, just to get those verses again. Hebrews six and twelve. Hebrews six and twelve. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Right. It's the idea. And that slothful might mean dull of hearing when we heard earlier. We need to be diligent in what we're doing. And then also in Hebrews 10, uh, 36 and 37. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. And yet a little while, he that shall come, Jesus, will come and will not tarry. And now the just shall live by faith. But any man who draws back my soul hath no pleasure in him. And so this is that living out that faith. Hearing the word, heeding the word, doing what's right. Even when your carnal self says, I don't really want to. Doing the right thing and patiently waiting. okay? And they're enduring, right? They're enduring persecutions. They're enduring tribulations. You know, all these TV preachers say, well, if you just follow Christ and send me your seed money, all your problems will go away. They don't read much scripture. <laughs> I mean, their, their ministries generally aren't based on scripture cross and following Jesus, the cross is not a symbol of honor and dignity and wealth and power. It's a symbol of shame and reproach. You know, It's one of the lowest forms of being executed. Take up your cross. Count the cost. So, your persecutions and your tribulations which you endure, it says, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, the equitable judgment of God. That ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. Okay? There is an honor and dignity that comes from God choosing to allow you to suffer for his name's sake. And your carnal mind say, what? Go look over in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Jesus has ascended back into heaven. Uh, these disciples who've been really slow on the uptake uh, throughout Jesus' ministry are now left on their own, right? And they're going and they're preaching and they're teaching and they get thrown in jail for it. Um, And the Lord lets them out of jail, there's a miracle, and then they go back and they preach and teach in the temple and then they're arrested again and they're brought before the council and the court um, basically is telling them, y'all need to hush and not um, preach this name anymore and just say, you remember the lesson we're going to beat you, right? And so they had preached, been jailed, preached, were arrested, taken to court, beaten, and then they let them go. And then preached some more. And that's what they would do later. You're right. Um, so look down in Acts uh, 40, um, and to them they agreed, and when they had called the apostles back and had beaten him, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing. <laughs> that they were counted worthy, that they were deemed deserving to suffer shame for His name. For which ye suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing, verse 5, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. I want you to go back over to 1 Peter again and look at chapter 4. There is a correspondence between a suffering cost in this world and faithfully following Christ. 1 Peter 4 starts in verse 1 says, "...for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind." He says, go ahead and get it in your head that that's the example your master gave. Be ready. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin; that he no longer should live in the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. That once you're to the point where you're willing to endure suffering and sin for Christ's sake, that's that's an evidence that you've been born again. And you're no longer in bondage to that sin where you were before. Beforehand, when you're still you know dead in trespasses and sins, um, you don't care. Right? You're not willing to suffer a cost. I mean, you, I may give lip service to Christ. I may join the church. I may get baptized. I may sit on the bench some Sundays. But if there's a cost, it's like, whoa! No, this is not for me. Right? And you can see that back in Matthew when it talks about where the seed is sown. and If it's sown in the, the hard, uh, rocky soil, right? Where it springs up, they received it for joy for a time. But when persecution and affliction come, then they're offended. They're like, oh, no, what, what do you mean? Okay. So here it's letting you know that it's it's real. He no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of God. So okay, back then, when you're dead in trespasses and sins, yes, we did that. When we walked in lasciviousness. That means desiring the things that we know are wrong. Desiring the forbidden. Uh, lusts, excesses of wine, drinking to be uh, drunk, revelings, it's a nice word for partyings, banquetings, that's overindulgence in any food or drink, and abominable idolatries, that's just the general catch-all, anything that you're serving in God and life, and the excess wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Who's the day there? Those are your friends. Those are your old friends who you used to do all that garbage with, now they think something's off with you. You're not willing to participate with us anymore, and they're going to speak evil of you. That's okay. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? All right? Even our friends, former friends, will have to glorify God and they speak in evil of us at the last day because they saw that we were faithfully serving Him. And it's going to be a glory to God at the end. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the spirit. So, you will be judged in this world for serving God. You'll be judged by men. Are they righteous judges? No. But there's a cost for serving God. And that's having the scorn and disesteem and all manner of reproaches. If you're faithfully serving God, you're going to upset people and they won't want to be around you. And that's the difference between being a born-again child of God is that you love the other born-again children of God and you want to be around them as opposed to wanting to try and keep your foot back in the other world. right? So suffering as a Christian, you see this idea later down in chapter 4 and verse 12, says, Beloved... Think it not strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Y'all ever get that kind of attitude? You know, I'm doing right, and this is still going on, and it's hard, and it's making me not want to, you know, do the right thing serve Christ. There's a cost to it. Well, this is weird. This is this God shouldn't shouldn't require this, right? You know, that's kind of my my faulty thinking here. It says, don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange that if you're having a fiery trial to try your faith. But rejoice inasmuch as you partakers of Christ's sufferings that when His glory shall be revealed you may be glad also with exceeding joy. You will appreciate and understand and rejoice more in that day of joy when He comes because you are allowed to suffer like He suffered for you in small doses. Right? nothing close to the real or the magnitude that he went through for you but you have a little bit of that appreciation you can enjoy for if you be reproached for the name of Christ so you're following Christ and that's the reason you're being reproached or being uh, you know, slandered as happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth on you on their part he's evil spoken of yeah they can be defaming Christ by uh, how they're talking about you and your service of him but on your part he's glorified now, the contrast to this is not suffering because you're doing wrongs, and there's no glory and honor in God for that. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other man's affairs. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, then let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Okay, so you can, you can, and will. Suffer in this life. You're going to be a follower of Christ. There is a cost. And as long as you're suffering because you're following Christ, you can be happy in that. You can have a good conscience. You can know that this is not a surprise. He told me this was going to happen, and I'm getting to experience a little bit of what my master went through, and so that when I receive those promises, man, they're just going to be all that sweeter. So if you go back to 1 Thessalonians, you see that, yes, it's God's righteous token that you get to have a little bit of the suffering here, but what's going to happen with those that are causing the torment and torture to you? <coughs> Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Recompense means to return, to repay, to mete out His vengeance. All right? The Lord says vengeance is mine. You don't have to right all those wrongs here. No? But He's going to take care of it. So those that are reproaching you and those that are making your life miserable because you're a follower of Christ, those who, you know, hate the Lord and, and they're making it known and plain says He is going to return tribulation to them that trouble them, that trouble you. And that tribulation shall come to, you know, all the world, but for the chosen ones, the ones that God chose before the foundation of the world, the one that He gave to His Son, and those are the ones that He came to suffer and die for and to obtain their salvation. Trouble them, rest with us, with all the other believers. And that's the same concept that we've discussed over in Hebrews. Right? Hebrews 4... I'm going to say it was 6. Hebrews 4 and 6. Nope. Verse 9 and 10. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he hath also st- lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So it's that rest that was promised. And that's the rest that he will fully reveal on that last day, that notable day. So we'll receive rest. And that rest is you know, described back in First Thessalonians. a beautiful picture with Jesus' coming. And the other side of that coin is that there will be that tribulation. There will be that trouble. Um, that will be that judgment. Okay. When the Lord, and you who are troubled, rest with us, verse 7. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. So you can get, your, get your scene in your head here. Jesus is coming. His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, wherein He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Okay, That's your seeing. And a lot of that is focusing on the harsh, just judgment that God is going to Meet out, All right. so that will come. That's the, that's the counterpart, you know, to every single one of his children. Best day ever. Everyone else, worst day ever. The beginning, of the worst day ever. All right, taking vengeance on them that know not God. So I just want to spend a little bit of time thinking about that expression of knowing. Not God, or not knowing God. Go back to John chapter 14. Jesus is comforting the disciples. The night before He's going to be crucified. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions, or dwellings, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Right? That first side of the coin. The Christ is coming to receive his own to so. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said unto him, I am the way, The truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. So I want this idea of there is a knowing of the Father. There is one way to know the Father, and that is by knowing the Son, the second person of the Trinity. There's no getting around to the Father by any other way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you've known me, you should also know my Father. One and, one and the same in knowing. Right? Go back to John 10. John 10, the idea of knowing God, knowing our Savior, knowing our Lord. John 10, verses 14 and 15. It says, I am the good shepherd, Jesus speaking. I know my sheep. He knows us and am known of my sheep. It's a two-way street, right? He knows his sheep, and the sheep know him. And this is different than just God and Jesus knowing all things, right? He knows everybody, right? He knows all things. He's never learned anything, and so this knowing is, is special. This is different. This is knowing and regarding with favor or with love. It's not just I know everybody. Well, you do know everybody, but this is knowing in a different way, right? He knows His sheep. He knows them that they are His and they are known of Mine. So you as His sheep know Him and by knowing Him you know the Father. Even as the Father knoweth Me, even so know I the Father and I lay down My life for the sheep. And So you've got this connection, this ability, this seeing and knowing and knowing your Savior and knowing your Father versus those who don't know don't know the Lord verse uh, 16 2-3 uh, sorry John chapter 16 I'm oh, sorry verse 1 these things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended <laughs> that you don't stumble when things get hard I want you to let you know that this is coming that you should not be offended they shall put you out of the synagogues that's a pretty serious approach right Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. That's, that's a level of persecution you and I have never experienced. Right? We may get funny looks if we say things that are not uh, in touch with today's cultural norms. But that's about it. No one's threatened to kill us over that. He said, you'll be put out of your synagogue. Someone who's going to kill you is think they're doing God's service. And these things will they do unto you. Why? Because they have not known the Father nor me. So this unknowing, the not knowing the Father and not knowing the Son, that's that's a description for those who are not elect. They don't know Him. And so they're going to do things that are harsh and hateful and contrary to God because as our natural selves, we're in enmity with God. Okay. Go later over to John 17, 1-3. These words spake Jesus as He lifted up His eyes to heaven. This is described as Jesus' is like high priestly prayer. It says, Father... The hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to everybody? No. To as many as thou hast given him. There's a specific number that are given to him. That's who he had power to give eternal life to. But what is eternal life? And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ Christ whom thou hast sent. So folks in this world who like the idea of heaven, but don't like God, are not going to like heaven. <laughs> heaven is knowing God and being in his presence. They're not going to be missing out on something they didn't want to begin with. John 7 and 25, 17 and 25 says, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. So there's a difference of knowing and unknowing. All right. And then later, go over to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. Remember when we were talking about uh, that new covenant? Put in the the old it being folded up. And he's quoting in Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8 and 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the new birth. When you're born again, he puts his law into your heart. He puts uh, into your mind and your hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. So every member of God's family will be born again at some point in their life. And when they're born again he puts his law into his heart, you know him. You don't have to have anybody explain it to you. Right? It's not because I came and preached the gospel to you that suddenly you know him. No, you knew him in advance. I may tell you some more particulars about it, but you know him. Right? The knowing of God. Right? So, all right, let's go back to 2 Thessalonians and see, see what, what it says or happened. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. So, every single one of his children will know him, and they're the ones who will receive the rest. And those who don't, they don't know him, and they can't know him, and they won't know him. And right now they hate him. And he will take his vengeance. So, that they that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you're knowing and you're obeying. All right, John 8 42. John 8 verse 42 Jesus said unto them if God were your father ye would love me for I proceeded forth from God neither came I of myself but he sent me why do you not understand my speech even because ye cannot hear my word Right? they had not been given ears to hear they had not been given spiritual life and then go on to describe them as being of their father that was uh, the devil but if they knew God if they um, were from him they would love christ and if you love christ saying you'll do something john 14 15 if you love me jesus speaking if you love me keep my commandments that's a hallmark of being a follower of god of knowing him loving christ is that you're going to try to please him are you going to do it perfectly no but you're going to try because you love him not because you're fearing hell He's already poured the price for that. There's no question about where you'll wind up. He's predetermined your destination. But because you love Him, you're going to keep His commandments. So it's a motivation of love and gratitude, not of fear and avoidance of consequences. All right. And then uh, finally, just go back real quickly to John uh, 13 and 34. A new commandment I give unto you. Right? If you love me, keep my commandments. A new commandment I give unto you. That ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. That all men includes those who don't know him and don't love him. They'll still see there's something weird about you, about the way you love and care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, that guy's got to be a follower of Christ. I don't know why, but they, all men should be able to see. That's a hallmark. And so that's one of the reasons that, you know, Paul is, you know, thanking God is because what? Their love one for another is growing. It's not something that can be neglected. So, I'm a follower of Christ. Does your life look like it? Are you trying to keep his commandments and are you loving your brothers and sisters? The answer is to no on that, that. There's there's a problem. We can be hardened to sin and we can get way off base, but brothers and sisters, we need to repent. We need to humble ourselves and we need to go back to Him. Daily. And I'm not you know, not exempting myself in this. Alright. Keep going. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, two descriptors, the non-elect. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction everlasting destruction everlasting ruin're not going to just poof and go away it's going to continue on for forever but notice how it's described what is it what is that description of the ruin being punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord what is eternal life knowing God being in his presence and so hell and all of its awfulness, it's the exact opposite of that. It's being apart from God, being rejected, to being cast off from him. Being from the presence of God and from the glory of his power. So what are you know, the attributes folks can think about heaven? Oh, there's streets of gold and there's mansions, and you you know, if you're from the south, you probably imagine you know a lot of columns and you know plantation style mansions. Maybe I'm just being silly. I mean, mansions just means abode place. But the real feature there is God Himself! All that other stuff, it doesn't matter. You're in His presence, and you get to behold His glory. And from the glory of His power, unvarnished, unmitigated. Here, I mean, remember when he was talking about Sinai, a little bit of His power is showing up, and the people are just scared witless. Like, it was too much. They could not handle it here in this life. And you and I couldn't either. If God showed us His full glory, we just... But there you'll be in His presence and the glory of His power. Okay? So that's what destruction is, is being put away from that. And when He comes, what's He going to do? He shall come to be glorified in His saints. He gets glory in you, in your lives, in your faithfully serving, patiently enduring... All the good that you continue to do in His name in spite of the opposition and tribulations and trials, He gets glory in that. Not you. (laughs) Him. He's the one who enables you to. When He comes, He's going to... And all those who hated you, who are heaping scorn upon you, they're going to have to glorify God too for how you served Him. He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in them that believe. Who's going to admire Him? All of His children. They're going to love Him with beauty. It's the most beautiful thing you can imagine. And those who don't believe is going to be the most scary, terrifying, awful, awesome thing that they can imagine. Okay? Because our testimony among you was believed, He's saying, I know that you know He's going to be glorified in you and that you're going to admire Him because when I came and preached... You believed. And your lives reflected that. And you came and followed. Despite of all that persecution, you believed. So admire to them that believe in that day. Same day. Two very different experiences that were going to happen that day. And we're all going to be there. Whether we're still physically alive or whether we've died, we're going to be reunited with our bodies. We'll have glorified bodies. And we're all going to see what happens. The exact play-by-play. and you know, I can't tell you. Right? there's a lot of folks who want to argue about that with Revelation, they, this is exactly how it's going to be well, there's a lot of smart folks who looked at all the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament and they just completely whiffed on Jesus Right? smartest, best of the bunch they just completely missed and so I don't want to get dogmatic and say this is exactly how it's going to be but this is how it's going to wind up <laughs> I don't know exactly how the Lord's going to do everything in between but I know that it's going to wind up with he'll be here and we'll see and it'll be the best day that you can imagine and it'll be the beginning of the best days. And the, the next day is not going to be a letdown. Right? Sometimes you have that really great day, and the next day you're like, well, ugh. You know, it's not going to be like that. Every day for eternity with your God in His presence and in His glory. So, verse 11 gets to a wherefore, which is a big word for because. So, given all that we've talked about before, He's been thanking God for how you've been doing, He's thanking God that you're continuing to faithfully serve that that day is coming, there is going to be tribulation rendered, judgment rendered to those who oppress and hate you and hate God, and there's going to be rest given to you where you can glory and admire God. Because of all that, wherefore also we pray always for you, so we're not only thanking God for what you've done, we're praying for your future, praying that you always, praying for you always, excuse me, wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's he praying for? He's praying the Lord would count you worthy of this calling, that you would continue, that He would bless you to continue to live the life worthy of being there on that last day. Now, you're where you'll be experiencing that last day, day, is not contingent upon how you live. God's not bound by that. But you and I should still want, because we love the Lord and desire to please Him, to keep His commandments, we should want to live lives that are worthy of bringing Christ glory on that day. So that even our enemies have to glory that that person lived a godly life. I didn't see it, I hated him this time, but how? I just have to praise God for it. That you would live worthy of this calling, that calling to him, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. He would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. Fulfilling his good pleasure in your life. That his goodness would be manifested, that you'd be partakers of his holiness, not just in lip service. Because you're not going to be those that are cast out. You're being drawn unto Him. So draw close to Him now. Thought about the the Old Testament illustration. The difference. You know what happened when Cain killed Abel? What was his punishment? He wasn't just merely struck dead. He was cast out from the presence of the Lord. That's the sign. That was the rejection. He was cast out. How about Ishmael, right? All of us who are sons are going to have chastening in our life, but the bastard does not receive chastening. The illegitimate son, Ishmael, was Abraham's illegitimate child. What happened to him? He was cast out. And they were never chastened. Not in the same way that you and I are when we disobey God, because He chastens us because He loves us and desires for us to Bear are those fruits of righteousness. Okay? So we pray for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling, this calling to Him, that He would fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. The work of faith. That is your life! That He would fulfill His work of faith in your life, in your faith, with His power, sustaining you. That you live faithfully, doing His pleasure, doing His will looking forward to those promises that one day you'll receive. Not because you're so great, but in spite of you. Honestly. Because Christ is so great. And He's worthy of your praise. He's worthy of your time. He's worthy of your attention. He's worthy of your love. He's occupying that spot in your life that's more worthy than Christ and you need to take it down. That's modern day idolatry. right? You may not be bowing down to you know a carved wooden totem pole we can look at those we all they're dumb. but what do we put in our life that is more important than serving God whatever it is that's your idol that's what you're serving gotta tear it down and guess what we're really quick at rebuilding them so we've gotta be you know on idol guard duty all the time <laughs> all right? and why are we doing all this That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified. That's what we do. What's your purpose here below? There's a lot of books written on, what's my purpose? I can tell you your purpose. Your purpose here is to glorify God and to serve Him. Period. The exact manner that you go about doing that is giving you some really good instructions. Glorify Him. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in Him. Makes me think of that little children's song, right? Kids? This little Christian light of mine? I'm gonna let it shine. You know what it says back in Matthew five sixteen? It says, Let your light so shine that people may see your light and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So you're not shining your light. Say oh, look at me. I'm doing good. You're shining your light because it points to Christ, to God, gives him glory. It's not about not about us. But it also says, "Be glorified in you and ye in Him." You're glorified in Him. That's kind of strange. We don't like to think about ourselves being glorified, but there is there is an element of that, and I can see that over in uh, in First Peter. Obviously, I read First Peter a lot this week, and so we'll go back to First Peter, uh, chapter five, and in verse six it says, "Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God." that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon Him, for He careth for you. Is He going to glorify you in this life? He may. he may raise your situations up, and then He may take it back down. But that's not, I think, the glorying, the exalting is being talked about here. I think that's the glorying that will be revealed on that last day. When you're given glorified bodies and you are acknowledged to all of humanity and the universe that this is one of the Father's adopted children, He's made you kings and priests, right? Royal blood. You're well born. You're a child of the God. There's a glory in that. It's given to you. It's not because you're you're great, right? He chose us in spite of ourselves. We had nothing that we could offer. And yet He still chose His people for whatever reason He selected individuals. And we don't know who it is. It's not our business to go about checking boxes for other people. But He chose, and He is going to put glory upon you. Some of His glory is going to be upon you. So think about that. Think about that day. That that day of faith on that day when faith will be sight. like the song that we sing, right? But in the meantime, we're living this life where there's trials and there's suffering and there's testings of our faith. And you see that back in 1 Peter 1 and 7. It said, The trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The faith how you've lived out your life, how you've continued despite the trials, it can be found at the end unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. This is a weighty charge. This is not something we can take lightly. Not something that we can think about for a moment and then just go on with whatever we were doing. And we dwell on this May the Lord bless us next week as we try and go into the second chapter. Thank you all for your time and attention.